Hello, hello. I'm Kier. And I'm Liam. And this is Hot Take Think Tank, a podcast for culture war dropouts about awkward trade-offs in the pursuit of progress. So this week, Kier, you wrote an article called The Trouble with the Guilt Economy, and it does, as your articles often do, contain a little Ed, a little corner of something that I need to hear more about, uh, which is you mentioned that as part of this guilt economy, you would routinely send money to your exes even after you stopped talking to them. There was no like child support or anything like it's just an ex and you were working minimum wage and sending them money. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, that all did happen when I was in uh-huh. the, the depths of my social justice derangement. Mm-hmm. Oh, how to explain this? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> it's funny. My, my, maybe my two favorite fields of study are like economics and psychology. And this right. question really gets <laughs> at both of them. <laughs> it really does. It hits both. Um, yeah. I mean, I think basically um, one of my exes was a person of color and the other mm-hmm. ex was trans. And so I think mm-hmm. for, for one piece of it was that I felt like, you know, as a white person and someone who hasn't hadn't physically transitioned, that mm. I was in a better place than either of them. Um, right. And like to an extent that was kind of true because both of them did sort of struggle with employment employment here and there but Mm. i also did because you know i've had a long Mm -hmm. history of health problems and so on um so yeah i um i was working really very not very much uh definitely making below the equivalent of minimum wage and i yeah i continued to send money to those two people um (laughs) (laughs) like would you like send them a check in the mail or like PayPal. If (laughs) I like for one person, it would be, I think, mostly e transfer. Um, Uh Occasionally, they would like post to social media that they were kind of in a bind, and I would respond to that. Um, And then the other person, I might like hear that someone, you know, a mutual friend's going to visit them. And so I would like write a letter and like put money in it and send that along. Yeah. Okay. So, so but here's here's a weird part about this <laughs> is that I'm sure there were lots of other people in the subculture who you knew and were friends with, who I I figure you probably weren't regularly sending money to, <laughs> who also weren't like an ex. An ex in right. in my perspective would rank <laughs> lower than a stranger on likelihood to send money to. Well, I will tell no? you this. At the time, I was. I mean, uh, one of them was, one of them like seemed to be, but then like, you know, didn't turn out to be in the end, if that makes sense. Neither Mm. of them talked to me anymore while this money stuff was happening. And both of them Mm. kept taking the money as well, um, because they could have just sent it back or not taken the e-transfer or whatever. Um, so, but I will say I also gave strangers money during this time. Right, and totally. I, I still do sometimes give strangers yeah, yeah. money. <laughs> um, but um, I don't know. It's funny because like I do, I think part of it was just like I knew them well enough to like know that they were having a really hard time and like to know right, that like totally. they needed money for groceries or whatever. Um, but mm. I do feel like there was, at, at that time, like I was feeling a lot of like, like guilt and shame over everything in the world. And so it was almost like, I think in some ways I felt like I um, had like mistreated them and this was like a way of making up for it, which is very mm. funny because like I was, you know, basically we were in our mid twenties. We made all sorts of mistakes. I did things that right. hurt them. They did things that hurt me and they certainly did not feel very much guilt about like their oh, right. yeah. part of it. Right. <laughs> like, but I felt like such tremendous, you know, um, I don't know. Yeah. Just like regret maybe that like this felt like, uh, something, something worth doing. And I yeah. do feel like maybe hmm. there was like a small part of me, that was like maybe if I do this, they're not gonna like randomly cancel me. <laughs> uh right, totally. It's like something that you put in the pro cure column if there's it's ever like, like a, a debate yeah, about it. Yeah, it's like an insurance, <laughs> right? You're like <laughs> But anyways, yeah. I mean, 
And right. neither of those people, of <laughs> course, like neither of them overly threatened me or like anything even close yeah, to totally. that. This was like much more about like my internal psychology at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Right. But but that's not what the whole article was about. In fact, that was just a couple <laughs> throwaway lines that I felt I had I had to get into. <laughs> but uh, no, the article more broadly is sort of about sort of this whole system almost of like dispute resolution. The idea mm. that um you should sort of choose sides based on this identity stuff and sort of who is more guilty of of being in the wrong uh economic class or of the wrong race or that sort of thing uh which is uh, fascinating to read about <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely like i think for me it has become very clear that there's been like basically that being marginalized has become a commodity, right? Especially right. in the social sense, right? Where it's like mm. the more oppressed someone can convince people that they are, <laughs> the more uh, status that they have within the social justice community and like the more worthy of support and accolades they become. And it's sort mm. of those those exchanges that can be financial or can be related to opportunity or what have you, Um all of those exchanges are kind of what I consider to make up the guilt economy. Right. Yeah. And, um, it's a, I, it's a very interesting idea. I do like how up top you sort of compare it to like, a, or you, you bring it back to the, to earth a little bit by comparing it to, uh, like the context of right. Women being historically repressed and getting the right to vote. Right. I, was, I thought like, that's a, it does make sense. Yeah, if you find uh, a category of people who are like systematically uh you know, oppressed, uh it makes sense to try and write that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so it's I I feel like often when things go wrong, it it wasn't like wrong from the start. It's just sort of like over extrapolating sort of or or yeah. uh taking things to to the a ludicrous conclusion almost. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And it really does seem like something that like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like you do have to have all of your basic human needs met and a little bit Mm -hmm. beyond that in order to like spend all this time like ruminating about like Uh, your, (laughs) I don't know, like your position in the world, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, not, not that I think that people that are like really severely struggling, um, like, have a lack of like cognition or understanding totally. of their circumstances yeah. but it's more just like you know if you're trying to sort of like figure out different ways to like distort your history so that people will feel more sorry for you like that's a little bit of like right. a luxurious hobby no <laughs> <laughs> yeah to- i mean it's it's uh, a lot of people in the world don't have to hunt at all to find the ways that society has kept them down right uh, so there was that quite funny example of the the woman who thinks who traced her eating disorder back to the irish famine yeah something like that right that it's you know not just uh yeah which seems wild and sort of backwards to me (laughs) just like in the idea that um somehow like the current modern day actually happening struggle of an eating Mm -hmm. disorder somehow carries less weight than the like historical context of like several generations ago having descendants who went through something uh tragic seems Mm -hmm. like very weird and backwards uh, (laughs) right like what is more likely that there were like you know like uh bullies at school that influenced this or that it was the irish potato famine that your family survived several generations ago like what (laughs) or or, you know any other like (laughs) it's like an eating disorder is uh, a challenge regardless of where it came from yes i don't think that that necessarily is i I don't know if that's like part of building a solution to that problem would be necessarily figuring out where it came from in the first place because whatever wherever it came from is in the past (laughs) (laughs) especially that but yeah (laughs) yeah the (laughs) going even further into the past seems like moving the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's the thing about the guilt economy, though. And this came up in mm. a comment that I got from a reader mm. named Jim, who is basically just talking about how he'd been sort of confused, um, 
you know, for example, like at the Women's March, when you're, you never really hear about like all the progress that has been made. You just kind of right. hear about how there's still like all these problems, mm. you know, to be solved. And basically that it's like there there is a real aversion, it seems, like on the social justice left to ever admit that there's been any right. progress at all. Right. And that things are even a little bit better than they used to be. So when totally. that's kind of your mentality, you can see how like it, it becomes it, it becomes less important to fix your eating disorder. It's more important to figure out like how right. to talk about it and conceive of it and like how it turns you into sort of a tragic romantic figure right <laughs> totally no and there's there's this tie into an essay from a few weeks ago about purity i feel like where there's um there's this fear of having like an unpure narrative where mm -hmm. right like the women's march narrative is about the struggles women face in society and um talking about progress that has been made undermines that narrative yeah. Or could, or at the very least, it makes it less pure, right? Like it, it makes it a less clean right. picture of like, we are oppressed, we need uh, to make progress, right? And it's like, well, we have made progress is uh, true. And also, if you're like allergic to that sort of complexity in a narrative, uh, you can't, you don't want to talk about that part, right? You want to have a nice, pure underdog narrative that like doesn't have any, any complications of like, Right. You know, the rate of progress or anything like that. Absolutely. And I felt that a lot since like not being so much of an activist, right? Like, cause it really has come to seem to me that part of an activist's role is actually to raise the alarm. And in order to raise the alarm, right. part of what that might necessitate is saying like, oh my gosh, this is an emergency. This is terrible. Like we need <laughs> to fix this right now, you know? And that it's like, maybe there, there is like a role in society for that. Right. But we also need, you know, policy people or like, you just need different perspectives who can be like, can put into perspective what the activists are saying and can yeah. like challenge like the more hysterical parts of it while also like taking the concern seriously if that makes sense totally well and it, and there's a bit that might come up again later in this episode when we discuss the other article but um there's a bit of like denying the progress uh worries me in part because it makes it seem as though the current system doesn't allow for progress and that like a revolution is required right that mm -hmm. like whatever capitalism democracy we have now that system isn't working shut it down replace it with something new mm -hmm. that's like i feel like that's a natural conclusion if you think like you know nothing's being done about climate change nothing's being done for women nothing's being done for people of color i think that that i don't know i think it can can lead to that sort of like revolutionary mindset mm -hmm. whereas i think wrestling with uh it's like it's so easy to just dismiss the whole system if you think nothing has made any progress but if you have to admit the progress that has occurred under the existing system then suddenly you have to be pretty sure that your revolution will lead to a system that progresses faster instead of just a system that replaces this garbage one with anything. <laughs> you, right. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> totally. Like anything would be better than what we have, which is a crazy totally. thing to say if you live in Canada <laughs> or yeah. even the United States. <laughs> like Totally. It's, you know, and, yeah. It's, <laughs> social there, unrest is like not all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> no, no. People die in revolutions. Like they kill each other. <laughs> yeah. Like, and then like, yeah, no, they're, they're, uh, like that, I I wouldn't say that there's no time for them, right? But like, um, when almost everyone in your society has like food and shelter, um, mm -hmm. and also and more than that, like progress is happening, yeah, at a rate, right? Maybe it's slower. Maybe it would be nice for it to be twice as fast, mm -hmm. but um, it's also not like it, it, society's not standing still as it is <laughs> no exactly like uh, since i think you taught me on one of these episodes basically that mm -hmm. the number of people living under the poverty line in canada is half mm. what it was when justin trudeau first became prime minister right yeah like and nine years ago or something like nine years ago <laughs> yeah so i like i have been like shouting that from the rooftops right because <laughs> I don't like Trudeau and I don't vote for sure. liberals, but yeah. 
it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I like them. This still happened. This is like a factual accomplishment totally. that the government has <laughs> that I yeah. think is amazing. Like that is amazing. Right? It's, yeah, it is totally. <laughs> That's great. Like, and like, if we can never ever say that, like, it just it turns it turns you into such an incredible cynic that it's like, yeah. why would you even try to do anything at that point, right? Because the one thing, totally. uh, in one direction, yeah, you can become a revolutionary who's like, we have to get rid of this, you know, white supremacist mm. government mm-hmm. today. And then on the other hand, you're like, wait, wait, wait. So if there's no difference between slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration, that means that slavery abolition accomplished nothing. Civil rights movement accomplished (laughs) nothing. Black nationalism up until today has accomplished nothing. So why even bother? Totally. Yeah. It's like (laughs) the only two sensible things are like, yeah, revolution or just nihilism. Right. Being Nihilism, like, well, nothing exactly. ever changes. I guess I'll never work towards anything, <laughs> which. Uh, yeah. Yeah. W- w- but f- like the progress that has happened was largely from people who fell into neither of those categories. Right. It's been a lot yeah. of incrementalists. Right. <laughs> As well, that's like you the know, last... <laughs> I think you could have like I think there is some like healthy disagreement there. Right. Like it's true. Yeah. Some people say that like it is sort of like the mix that you have in a time like the civil rights era where you have mm-hmm. the people that are willing to like do extreme things. And then you also have totally. the, you know, kind of, um, more like civil disobedience people. And, and that all of that together is responded to with, you know, the, the progress of that time. Um, yeah. and I think that yeah. there may be something to that, but, um, I think it's, it's very, very, very silly to pretend that, yeah, there's been no progress or that, you know, the the people who have been the most strategic mm. were totally unsuccessful, right? Like all of the civil rights right, marchers totally. who did, you know, that was a very like hierarchical movement. It was very well organized. It was very mm. disciplined, right? Totally. <laughs> and yeah. um, that, I think, is a huge piece of like why they did succeed in the ways that they did yeah yeah totally well and and you're right maybe helped out by having the revolutionaries next to whom <laughs> they looked very sensible yeah <laughs> i think yeah. i mean i think they would look sensible regardless but it sort of is like a uh, i don't know an overton window sort of thing maybe yeah perhaps for sure i think that's that's kind of how a lot of the more radical activists understand it anyway so <laughs> yeah interesting <laughs> yeah but this whole yeah. um essay like came to be mm. because like about a week earlier on my instagram account i'd ask mm-hmm. people like you know what effects have you seen um from marginality becoming a commodity like what what right. has that looked like in your life and i just got like I got like the craziest flood of answers. Like, first of mm. all, I've never received this, this volume of response to anything <laughs> on Instagram. Huh. Um, but yeah, like I just, it feels like it touched a nerve and I got like a mm. bunch of really fascinating um, comments from people that eventually I was like, okay, I, I got to write more about this. Right. Um, totally. But some of the ones that stuck out, one of them was, uh, goes like this. I've noticed the tone of particularly zealous members of social justice culture change dramatically towards me when they learn that I'm half indigenous. They start talking Mm. to me like one would to a baby needing soothing. It is very strange and patronizing. (laughs) Uh Yeah, that's super awkward. (laughs) Super weird. Yeah. I think like there was another one that felt along the similar lines. It says, I feel very alienated in a way and also put on a pedestal as a black woman and it's frustrating. Mm. And I think it's like one thing that a lot of social justice people don't realize is that it's actually very um, dehumanizing to like put someone on a pedestal, right? Like how weird has that got to be where someone's like talking to you one way and then they find out that you're half indigenous and they're like, Oh, like they just like (laughs) start like, it's weird. It doesn't feel good for that person. No, totally. it doesn't. Well, they were the same person before and after that information came out. And it's weird. Exactly. That, that changes your view of things. Right. Like it, it's, yeah. No, it seems that it's a weird way to treat people. I think uh, differently based on their race is 
<laughs> is yeah historically very uh, not looked well upon i don't no, think no it's, it's that's it's weird really you're not. being weird if you do that <laughs> you are if you just like completely change how you talk to someone and there were really a number of white people talking about how they got so much worse at talking to people of color in social right. justice land and right, i right. certainly not even, feel that not way on, not on purpose just no. be based on what they're reading or whatever it like puts all these confusing complicated ideas in their head uh, yeah like they're trying of just to do... like just being like a uh just acting how you would normally act is probably right. a good starting place <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely the funny thing is too is like these are people that are actively trying to pursue anti-racism right they're right, learning totally. and they're practicing things to try and be less racist and right. the end result is that like you are like just impossibly neurotic when you're interacting yeah. with people. Um, it's, <laughs> totally. and no, I've, there's some I've things, felt that way. There are some things I feel like that can't be so directly worked on. I don't know if that quite makes sense, but it's like some things mm. trying really, really, really hard to do them right leads to not doing them right. Right. And like there's not, not, <laughs> it's like weird. It's not, uh, it's a subcategory of things. I think mostly to do with like, internal like consciousness sort of stuff mm -hmm. is very hard to try harder and do better at um there's like a uh yeah you get stuck in like a very cognitive place that makes it uh, yes. makes it hard to just live <laughs> absolutely i mean i think like for me when i was deepest in it i i would like bring up someone's race all the time right if mm. i was having a conversation <laughs> which is like so awkward and awful like it, I, like yeah, i just can't imagine is. doing that now right and it's just crazy to think yeah. that like at 18 you know i'd been raised by like a lefty-ish family and like yeah. been you know taught i mean i remember learning like from our dad about like slavery abolition and the underground mm -hmm. underground railroad when i was like around 10 maybe and um and so like that stuff was like important in our family. But the main takeaway that I got was that mm. like you treat everyone the same. You, you treat totally. everyone as a full human being, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone with respect, everyone with dignity. Like exactly. Not, yeah. No, no exceptions. That was There's the no point, exceptions right? to that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's just, it's just wild to think that like I, I went through this like, you know, radicalization. And suddenly I'm mm. like, no, 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 I have to treat these different groups differently. And I like, yeah. just like came up with this like wild, yeah. Anti-racist like viewpoint. And yeah. now I've really come back around to like what our parents taught us and like, yeah, <laughs> you know, to just like be, be curious, don't make assumptions, like get to know the actual person in front of you rather than like it, what you imagine them to be or what you assume them totally. to be. Right. Yeah. No, to, okay, that actually touches on one of my hard-hitting questions I have about your essay. <laughs> okay. Because um, <laughs> you mentioned, uh, like, I, like I said, you mentioned, like, the example of giving women the right to vote as, like, a sensible uh, sort of, you know, early-stage guilt economy sort of thing. Um, <laughs> you didn't frame exactly like that. You know what I'm talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like what's interesting about that example is that it's not a special treatment for an oppressed group it is mm. it is that equal treatment right the let's no longer treat this group differently from the other group let's you know whatever we're giving to you know the best things we're giving to people we give to everyone yeah uh, and so i'm kind of curious um where you land on uh like uh, examples that you think make sense that aren't just that like equality uh, goal like where if it does make sense sometimes to like overcompensate <laughs> to not, right. not bring a group up to baseline but to yeah like provide a boost temporarily or uh forever <laughs> yeah no that's a really good question right because there's like there's equality in opportunity right where like right. everyone yeah. gets to apply um, there's mm -hmm. opportunity and outcome, right. Where everyone ends up with the exact same thing in the end. Um, yep. and so, yeah, there's lots of interesting debates around like, well, yeah, where exactly, where do we need equality, you know? A mm. And yeah, should there be some, like, does special treatment make sense in certain cases? Totally. And I think one thing that I think about a lot in that 
case is I wish that there were a lot, there was a lot more on the job training for many things, right? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like one of the main obstacles that people have to like doing better in life is like their level of education. Right. And then Mm -hmm. more specifically than that, like, where did they go to school? Did they go to somewhere really Mm -hmm. great or not? (laughs) You know, and so you have sort of um, like I think that it would be cool like to basically be able to um, recognize people's um, potential more and and to actually like, take on the responsibility of being like, okay, you don't exactly know how to do this yet, but like you have enough interesting skills and experience that mm-hmm. like, we're going to teach you how to do this, you know? Yeah, um, interesting. So yeah, I'd I say like, like, I actually yeah. like that. Cause it is, it is still, it's sort of, it's something that you could offer to the public as a whole, but the people who would show up for it are likely to be the people who, yeah, got a bad lot in one way or another. So it's not like, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it sort of gets around the like identitarian sort of, you know, we're going to do this for women and gets yeah. back to like, we're going to do this for everyone. Women probably need it more, right? Or like right. Uh, affordable child care, I feel like is a similar mm-hmm. policy, right? Where right, it's like, exactly. It's it's for everyone. Um, but the section of society that benefits most is the, the women who the child care labor uh, unevenly falls to, right? That's yeah, that's another great example. I I think this is why, like in general, I think universal programs that, Mm. you know, often do like the benefit is much greater to people who are having the hardest time. Like that's those programs, I think, are um, a really great way to go, because I mean, Mm. the whole DEI complex there's lots to say about it but one of the things that's just almost missing entirely is class right like totally it's almost like not addressed at all and so you know dei transformations at workplaces can be really great for like upper class people of color who know exactly what to say (laughs) and how to use the language and like that sort of thing but like does it do anything for yeah the janitor who would actually like to start working an office job and like has the brain for it but like yeah does not have the papers for it yet you know yeah yeah very interesting all right i, I have my one other hard-hitting question um <laughs> <laughs> is you mentioned sort of at the end of the article you talk about divesting from the guilt economy sort of like how to how to escape the whole cycle and uh give you know give up on the idea sort of um, but I think all your advice mostly has to do with, um, like, no longer uh, I, sort of, like, guilt-tripping other people, like how to stop being a, right. a perpetrator, <laughs> sort of. Uh, I wonder if you have advice for, uh, I mean, like, people in your situation now where you are no longer perpetrating it, but mm-hmm. um, what happens when someone comes to you now with this vibe of, yeah, I'm oppressed, so... I'm your ex, so send me money sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, I think for me, the major thing that I do is I just like look to see if there's like an actual material issue there that needs addressing, right? Right. Like, Mm. okay, so they're, you know, maybe they're being kind of over the top about like what's going on, but like at the root of it, if there is a problem that they need help solving, an actual problem um that like has solutions that like Mm, has mm -hmm. you know available services or supports or whatever i would love to help that person get those things right but if there isn't really anything or it's really fuzzy or it's they just want me to feel bad (laughs) or whatever right Right. like if it seems like what they want from me is shame or guilt or whatever Um, they're not, they're not going to get that. Right. So, cause I, I do think, you know, there are people that are falling into this trap of like, um, uh, placing all this emphasis on, uh, you Mm. know, their Mm -hmm. marginalized identities who actually really do need help. They've got some stuff going on. Right. So yeah, yeah, you don't want to like go so far where you're like, so triggered by anyone who's like right, appealing right. anyone to who guilt. mentions their race gets no help from me that's not exactly a good <laughs> yes that's yeah. not the way <laughs> um but that's that's a great question yeah because you're right the end of it talks more to the the aggrieved than it does to the rest of us yeah totally yeah <laughs> cool well uh yeah great article uh, did you have any trouble getting it past uh substack's legal review team 
No. Oh, wait. Oh, they don't have a legal <laughs> review team, thanks to Section 230. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Liam. How was that for a transition? <laughs> that was very, yeah, that oh, had me you, on the edge you. of my seat. Uh, we wanted to also talk about an article published in Wired magazine called mm-hmm. The One Internet Hack That Could Save everything uh subtitle it's so simple acts 26 words from the communications decency act welcome to a world without section 230 uh written by jaron lanier and allison stanger uh and i i have a lot of thoughts on this article (laughs) it's funny i mentioned to you that this is like i've had thoughts about section 230 for like five or six years now and it has never come up a single time in my life. <laughs> no one's like, so, uh, Liam, what do you think what about you think? Section 230? Section 230? <laughs> but you've been so ready this whole time. I, I'm ready. Uh, so <laughs> let's let's get into it, shall we? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you, you said you had some context about the author. Did you want to start with that? Or should I start with a sure. summary? What do you, yeah, what do you think? I'll just mention real quick. Jaron Lanier's name jumped out at me, um, and I realized... Um, that I had read a book of his about six years ago. Um, so okay. Jaron Lanier is a computer scientist and philosopher, among other mm-hmm. things, and he is considered one of the founders of virtual reality. Um, he's been in Silicon Valley for a very long time. Mm. Um, and I first heard of him in 2018 when he wrote a book called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Hmm. At the time, I found him very persuasive. Um, And Mm -hmm. the argument that has stuck with me to this day is basically that social media algorithms have more influence on our thinking than we realize. And that we really need a certain percentage of people to stay off of social media because we Mm. need independent thinkers. We need original thought. And social media compromises that, basically. Um, And... Yeah, I I don't find that as compelling today as I did back then. Um, And part of that is just like, as a writer who is not famous, (laughs) I need to use social media for to find people to read my stuff. And if I I, I'm just shooting myself in the foot if I don't do that, basically. Um, And interesting. Yeah. So I, I think that like I would say that Lanier is like a bit of a doomsdayer in regards to the effects of social media. And I think right. that there's like it's good that someone's doing that. But that that's sort of sure, like sure. where I think he's coming from. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that makes me think of what we were talking about before. Like the the is there a use for revolutionaries, even if you don't think revolution is the way to go? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So let's uh, let's get into the article a bit. Um, It starts by stating that the concept of free speech uh, no longer makes sense thanks to the internet Uh, because, quote, people cannot simply speak for themselves. There's always a mysterious algorithm in the room that has independently set the volume of the speaker's voice. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so that's the lead in to suggesting that all regulation for the internet needs to be rethought, uh, particularly... This article is suggesting removing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um, it goes into a bit of history of the of Section 230. Uh, it's basically it's a clause about liability. Um, you know what? I'm going to jump into my history because I think I have better history about it than uh, was in this <laughs> article. <laughs> um, there's there was these two lawsuits in the 90s that led to Section 230. Um, the first one was Cubby versus CompuServe in 1991. Uh, and basically it was Cubby suing CompuServe for defamation um, because there were comments on a CompuServe forum that were claimed to be defamatory. Right. Um, and CompuServe, you know, was running the website but hadn't written the comments themselves. And the judge decided that, that CompuServe was not liable because uh, they weren't a publisher. They were a distributor. Right. Um, four years later, Stratton Oakmont sues Prodigy uh, in a very similar situation. Stratton Oakmont, funny enough, is that is the Wolf of Wall Street company. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't come into it in any other way. It's just sort of a fun fact. <laughs> um, but in this case, Prodigy lost because they moderated their forum. Um, And because they were like actively removing some comments and, you know, they had policies and guidelines and that the judge said, uh, you're more than a mere distributor. You're a publisher of sorts. um, So you are liable for everything that gets posted. (laughs) 
Wow. And so this left uh, the law in a very awkward place where you had two options, basically. Either don't moderate at all, um, right. and you're in the clear liability-wise, or moderate so strictly that you are sure nothing anyone is posting uh, will get you into any legal trouble. Wow. Which requires a very a very high level of moderation, obviously. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, at that point, you just wouldn't have reviews anymore. To- yeah, yeah. You'd turn positive. off your comments. You'd turn yeah. off, uh, you'd like, yeah, and you'd turn off, well, especially for, like, defamation, because it comes down in many cases to whether or not the statement is true, mm-hmm. which is very hard to determine before it gets to the court. So you'd yeah. sort of just, like, any, any sort of speculative thing, you would just delete. Um. So that was a bad situation for the law to be in. And that's where Section 230 came in. The idea of it is um, it was framed by like the original people who drafted the legislation as a sword and a shield. Um, the shield is you're not going to be legally liable for the stuff that gets posted on your website. Um, the person who posts it will have that liability if there is any liability to go around. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sword is you're allowed to take comments down and you're allowed to moderate um and doing so doesn't transfer the liability back onto you interesting like it did in the 1990 case 1995 case mm-hmm. um that was the idea of it <laughs> that's sort of so that's the context of section 230 that uh mm-hmm. i care about but was sort of skimmed over in the article <laughs> <laughs> uh the article uh, sorry did you want to say something um, no, it's just interesting to hear. It mm. sounds like it's like there's already a really delicate balance that it's trying to create, right? Totally. Yeah, we, we used our new tagline up at the top of the episode about the uh, awkward trade-offs of progress. And mm-hmm. this, yeah, Section 230 comes out of an awkward trade-off of the, like, do we want people to be able to moderate? Do we want them to be publishers if they moderate that whole that whole thing, yeah, it was hard to like find a through line for, and Section Two Hundred and Thirty is um, where where Congress landed back in ninety six. Which is also, um, can I just say that's crazy <laughs> that like nineteen ninety six legislation yeah. made in nineteen ninety six is like continues to. I mean, I know that's totally. probably true for lots of laws, but it's just wild because of where the inter- internet was in nineteen ninety six versus now. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It was uh, a totally different. Yeah, totally different scale, totally different uh, sense of, um, you know, what the Internet's place in history would be um, when the law mm-hmm. was written. Yeah, but so Section 230 did pretty much lay the groundwork for the Internet uh, that we have today, which this article goes into a bit, um, because it would be almost impossible to build like a, an Internet platform without that liability shield. Um, mm-hmm. Just because of like the level right my my joke about substack needing a legal team to review all of the posts that go up on it right they would need to make sure that no one is posting anything that violates any law um which would just be unfeasible for anything that you have you know user contributed content to yeah Um, absolutely just the volume of posts on any of them facebook tiktok youtube like (laughs) google like yeah no they they just like it, it just would be unfeasible from day one sort of to have a site where anyone could could submit things um, yeah so that's a fascinating just like context for this article right because right. he's arguing that we should get rid of this so what's his what's yes. his deal well, <laughs> what's so, up so his section about uh like the effects of section 230 um basically just lays out all of the problems with the internet which hmm. there are many and in some sense it is true that they all stem from 230 and that the internet itself stems from 230, mm-hmm. right? So he sort of lays uh, the advertising business model, um, the way that algorithms will like optimize for highly emotional content. Um, he, they, there's a comment about it effectively suppressing thoughtful speech, um, huh. which I thought was funny to talk about on this podcast, which <laughs> right. has found most of its audience through social media and i hope is thoughtful speech (laughs) um yeah and um then after sort of going over the problems with the internet which it sounds like has been a a thing this author has written about before (laughs) Mm -hmm. um goes on to discuss the post 230 world um when we imagine a post 230 world we discover something surprising 
a world of hope and renewal worth inhabiting. Oh boy, that sounds realistic. <laughs> yeah, that so, does um, not sound utopian at all. No, totally. Very. I'm sure it's very grounded and sensible. Uh, how, and he's how we the, get there. He's the only one who's figured it out. This is amazing. I know. Cracked it's it. So he, simple. He's cracked it. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just this article sort of deteriorates as it goes on, and it wasn't that good to start with. It goes on about um, YouTube having started down the path to post 2:30 um, by having like alternatives to advertising revenue like i guess they have youtube premium now and like hmm. a patreon style thing which is mm-hmm. not what section 230 is about right it's just not the same it's just not the same thing <laughs> no and it's also uh, like totally not realistic for how all of these different platforms that rely on the protections of 230 like they can't just all have patrons what google has a patreon yeah no like how it's, does that it's... work <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's sort of this conflation of yeah of section 230 and like ad supported businesses which i right. think are they are related because they both sort of mm, work well with like a huge volume of content is good for advertising businesses but yeah they're, they're not the, the same thing at all uh they're uh maybe related but yeah overturning uh 230 would not would not mean no more advertising on the internet hmm. um it also says that companies would be compelled to prevent harassment hmm. which is also not very clear because again without it the options would be uh stop moderating entirely <laughs> which would not help with harassment or mm-hmm. moderate like wild to get rid of everything that could possibly be illegal, which would prevent harassment, but would also prevent like uh, a lot of things <laughs> L- like, you know, voicing your concern about uh, all sorts of political things. I imagine this show and your uh, essays probably wouldn't get past the sort of filters <laughs> that need to be set up. It will be a lot. I mean, yeah. it'll probably be a lot more of the like uh, no shade towards it, but like the picture of my dinner sort of on instagram that stuff could probably continue mm-hmm. but um and sort of any any speech that could be um offensive uh probably would be out, out the window without section right. 230 and that really really is like if you spend enough time on the internet you realize mm. that people are offended by literally anything someone out there is right yeah, totally <laughs> so it yeah, is well, and, like and it's, it's a, like Mm-hmm. The the only like feasible way to get the filtering done at the scale that would be necessary would have to be a sort of like a blunt automated filter that just like right. checks for words, right? Like just the number of posts. There's no way that you can actually have things screened by a legal team. Um, mm-hmm. It would have to just be sort of blunt. Uh, and then, uh, the, yeah, the article ends with a part about artificial intelligence uh, saying that quality content makes AI better. And that we should regulate to make uh, content better. Hmm. And that Section 230 somehow stops that. So he sounds kind of all over the place. It's, it, it's not, it wasn't a super cohesive article, I don't think. <laughs> and what um, are, so it sounds like you are very skeptical of getting rid of hmm. Section 230. Am I right about that? Yeah, totally. So what do you, what are the, um concerns that you have what do you think it would do to the internet to get rid of 230 right um what would it do to the internet to get rid of 230 (laughs) aside from (laughs) just destroy it completely (laughs) yeah i mean the it would all right so what what the companies that involve are involved in the internet would need to do um First off, there would be panic. Hopefully, there'd be some time to get ready for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then there would need to be a decision made at each company, basically, are we going to moderate or not? Um, and <laughs> the idea of not moderating seems wild and probably mm-hmm. would run afoul of some other laws. So, um, yeah, the, the weird sort of side effect, I think, that getting rid of 230 would have is... Um, entrenching the biggest tech companies sort of uh if any company has the money and scale to afford the legal team to do the filtering uh that will be required 
if if there was sort of no liability shield for a platform, um, it would pretty much be Facebook and Google. Um, mm-hmm. And right. any, so a company like Substack or, uh, I don't know, Patreon or like OnlyFans or anything, any of these companies that are like helping uh, individuals start businesses online, I don't know if any of them have like the overhead to look at every bit of content that's posted and assess whether or not it could open up them up to legal liability, particularly not yeah. for free, right? Like Substack lets you start a newsletter without paying them anything. Mm-hmm. Um and if they needed like legal review, uh, that probably wouldn't be a feasible like business model, right? Totally. So I, th- I think it would. I think without two thirty, the biggest companies would be entrenched because it would be very hard for a startup to compete. Um, and I think it would really blunt just the. It's funny that this article sort of like it, it talks about how that the internet needs an open and honest dialogue that fosters understanding rather than vitriol, collaboration rather than polarization, and the pursuit of knowledge and human excellence rather than a base race to the bottom of the brainstem. But, mm-hmm. like, if 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 every platform had to be, like, legally liable for everything posted to it, um, I think that would just really blunt um, our ability to talk about almost anything. Yeah. <laughs> like well, that's it, a... Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, it just... It seems like he really has not, like thought it through which seems strange for someone who's writing a wired article um but like yeah yeah, it just doesn't seem that like it felt like when i was reading it that he just made these leaps where he's like you know oh people would think it would be bad to get rid of it because of these reasons but we'll just solve them and it'll be great like yeah there's a there's several times where he's just like the answer won't be easy but i'm sure we can find it and yeah i don't know there's like on the meta level, what bothers me about articles like this is that, again, it sort of gets at what we were talking about before with like the lack of <clears throat> acknowledging progress, like undermining people's belief in democracy. I feel like similarly, um, pretending that there are these really easy solutions to these huge problems undermines people's belief in democracy because it's like oh, wow, I read this article in Wired that says if they just change one law, every problem with the internet will go away. Right. And why the hell aren't they doing that? Wow, exactly. Wow, they, they must not care about us. They must want the system to be broken, right? And it's like, there's it's actually... by design. These, but these, it's like these problems are actually just very hard. And that's yeah. part of why it takes a long time <laughs> to work out good solutions to well, them. Well, speaking of that, uh Hmm. back in i think it was 2021 the last uh federal election in canada um Hmm. and the liberal government actually was part of their platform that they were going to bring in legislation sort of around like online harms and um yeah it actually had they finally tabled a bill uh it's called Hmm. bill c63 also known as the online harms bill and it's pretty fascinating and it really mm. brings up like so many of the questions uh, that the article did. Um, so I'll quote from a CBC article by Darren Major called Long Awaited Online Harms Bill Proposes Higher Sentences for Spreading Hate Online. Mm. So here's the first little bit of it. The Liberal government is proposing heavier sentences, new regulatory bodies, and changes to a number of laws in new legislation to tackle online abuse. The Online Harms Act, tabled Monday, proposes to police seven categories of harmful content online. Those categories include content used to bully a child and content that encourages a child to harm themselves. They also include hate speech, content that incites violence or terrorism, content that sexualizes children or victims of sexual violence, and sexual content that is posted without consent. So... This I this is really fascinating to me because just the other day mm-hmm. I watched this YouTube video and it was actually about um, the sex offender registry in the USA mm. and mm. Uh, I promise this all ties in together. <laughs> I trust. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> basically, um, what I learned is that like uh, someone who say urinated uh, while drunk in public, mm. someone who. Uh, dated a younger teen while they were an older teen and mm-hmm. someone who groomed and raped multiple small children all right. 
face the exact same lifelong consequences of the sex offender registry. Right. So, you know, your face is forever on this Mm. sex offender registry list. So is your address. Um, You have lifelong probation. Uh, You cannot move Hmm. without, you know, registering all over again and getting a new, uh, you know, probate or parole officer. I think I'm not sure if it'd be probation or parole. In any case, um, you're constantly checking in with the state. Um, You know, different states have laws around like, you know, how far away from a school you need to live. Um, Mm -hmm. Just all sorts of stuff, like to the point where in certain states there are basically like homeless encampments that are almost entirely people that are on this registry because they like can't get work they can't live with their own families and again we're talking about everyone from like violent rapists to you know like teenage mistakes that like were Mm. bad but really nothing compared to those (laughs) to the violent rapists and like that are very unlikely to pose any sort of threat to anyone ever again right Mm. um so you know it's that flattening that's really concerning because here's the thing who's going Mm. to defend child molesters right yeah totally like nobody right nobody so (laughs) so but then all of a sudden you realize like your friend who like yeah peed while drunk uh is is an offender it it, there's like a dissonance right you can't possibly think that that's reasonable so when it comes to this new bill Mm. um you know like of course we want kids to be safe of course we want like people who have sexual images of them put online to be able to get them taken down quickly like there's Mm -hmm. some stuff in here where you're like yeah, great. Let's do that. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the questions kind of come up around the gray area, especially terms that are not actually well-defined, you know, hate crime totally. or, or hate being one right. example. Yeah. No, that's, it's, it's super interesting. It's, <clears throat> it's so easy to, um, we were just having a casual conversation like this one. You just use terms like that. And there's like an understanding. But when you write laws, you have to actually be very specific. You have to like define Mm -hmm. your terms because like it will be used in court to make decisions based on the precise wording that a law a law uses. But Mm -hmm. another thing that reminds me of I I, while I was preparing for this, I I listened to a podcast where someone um, complained about how when like newspapers talk about Donald Trump, they will often use phrases like... um, he made racially charged comments hmm. and people hate that right everyone hates that like uh weaselly language right right no one's like trump is a racist right everyone's like right. Oh. but the thing is uh the reason newspapers do that is because they're worried about the liability mm-hmm. of defamation right um and the reason people on twitter or instagram get to say trump is a racist is uh because of section 230 <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's totally. the sort of language that sort of like gray area like if i say that am i defaming someone probably it's a gray area um mm-hmm. and section 230 helps sort of that gray area <laughs> thrive in a way right yeah that, absolutely. A, that a big company with lawyers would never let it get through right <laughs> but um yes that sort absolutely. of yeah, middle middle ground gray area um yeah it can it can be important <laughs> it can and it's like yeah there, there's just the thing is is like when it comes to like infringements on free speech like usually hmm. people want the infringements on the people they disagree with and they don't want them <laughs> totally. on themselves yeah. right and they're like it's hard to contend with the idea that like we're going to hold everyone to the same standard right so one yeah. of the things so i looked at um what did the um uh what's it called the canadian civil liberties Mm. association what do they think of this bill um because i think they um their whole thing is like kind of playing the devil's advocate but maybe that's not fair it's Mm. even more so about like worst case scenario right like what are the unintended consequences um of legislation like this right so um, of course, they do some hedging, saying, you know, they endorse the declared purposes of blah, 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 all the good stuff. Um, yeah. But they say um, our initial assessment reveals that the bill includes overbroad violations of expressive freedom, privacy, protest rights and liberty. 
and that these must be rectified yeah. before the bill is passed into law. So I'll give you the craziest example for, sure. for starting out here. And that is that right now, um, if you advocate for genocide, mm -hmm. you the maximum sentence for that is five years. Mm -hmm. Do you want to guess with this new bill what the maximum sentence is for advocating genocide? Oh, I really don't know. Uh, <laughs> let's say 15. Life imprisonment. Wow. It's life imprisonment. And like huh. when we're having a moment where some people are saying anybody who says from the river to the sea, Palestine right. will be free yeah. is advocating genocide. You can start to see that this totally. is a slippery slope, even though it sounds weird to say like, who, again, who would defend genocide advocates? Like, yeah, yeah. But again, like, what is the definition? Who is going to get caught up in that net and literally totally. like never see the light of day again? Right. Like, yeah, that's that is draconian, like totally. straight up. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, and it's like there's also it feels like there are a bunch of steps in between. Um, like a angry tweet posted about something and like an actual effort to make something happen. Right. Yes. Yes. I totally actually. I want to get into that because there's this whole idea of stochastic terrorism, right? Mm. Um, and it's a newish term, I think, uh, which refers to political or media figures publicly demonizing a person or group in such a way that it inspires supporters of the figures to commit a violent act against the target of the speech. Hmm. Right. So it's basically, yeah, right. like a, a figure who speaks. But here's the thing. The figure is not making threats. But they're talking right. about a group in such a way that... Right, that makes people get angry and violent, but not yeah. because they were asked to, just because they get riled up. <laughs> yeah, and that to me, I'm just like, oh man, like, first of all, the use of the word terrorism, I'm like, feel really uncertain about because it's like, are we really saying... <laughs> are we really <laughs> saying that like saying bad things about a group of people online mm -hmm. is in any way equivalent to people being like blown up or right. shot to death yeah, totally. on mass. Right. Like that's what terrorism <laughs> usually consists uh -huh. of. So this, I don't know, again, like I feel like perhaps there's this con uh, concept creep happening. I mean, when it comes mm -hmm. to threats, like, yes, like any ones that, that um, I, I mean, I think the police are pretty like, good at figuring out which threats are just sort of like, oh, people being stupid and which threats are worth investigating. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I hope that that's the case because there is, there are a lot of like bad things that are said to you online um, if you have any sort mm -hmm. of platform. But again, like it's kind of like how having suicidal ideation does not actually mean that you'll make an attempt. Like those are two very different right. Right. things. Yeah. And I kind of think that like, again, like that, <laughs> it's it feels weird to be like trying to like defend hate speech or whatever <laughs> but the thing is is like the this bill um it includes from the ccla quote sweeping new search powers of electronic data with no warrant requirement right right yeah. uh there there are like the the ccla is really worried that free speech will be chilled by this bill and and totally. not just hate speech free speech right controversial speech or speech that is not uh you know flattering to the government for example yeah no it's it's interesting i feel like there's this there's this impulse that like wouldn't it be great if we could just write all the laws to get rid of all of the bad behavior in society mm-hmm um <laughs> But it it feel I think it's actually impossible to write laws to get rid of all the bad behavior without also getting rid of a bunch of good behavior, yeah, or gray area behavior, mm -hmm. right? So there's there is a question sort of of like how how severely do you want to restrict people's um, ability to post online about things in order to eradicate the the stuff that's like genuinely distasteful like i i'm there's no totally. no part of me that's like yeah online harassment is good for society like it's right. definitely bad <laughs> i'm just worried that there's no way to write a law that only gets rid of 
the stuff I don't like, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And that's a funny thing about Article 230 or Section 230 mm-hmm. is there are two big movements against it currently, hmm. one from the Democrats and one from the Republicans. <laughs> Democrats <laughs> really don't like the liability shield because they mm. think you're letting hate speech flow online and it's causing uh, shootings and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And Republicans really hate the sword because they say, you're banning Alex Jones and you took Donald Trump off of Twitter. Right. And it's like, <laughs> so it's like, do we have too much or too little of this? Yeah. In a sense, or, right? Or maybe, is it like actually a decent compromise? Maybe that's what right. that's a sign of. It's like, cool, everyone's mad. We got there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing is like, I just feel like we, it's like really good to be skeptical of how these new tools will be used. Right. And like, if this stuff means that like, there's this bureaucratic body that has like a huge amount of control over like playing the judge, jury and executioner and like deciding what counts as hate speech, because it's not well defined in the Canadian criminal code. Um, like we, there's reason, there's precedent for being very skeptical of this. And I'll give you an example that I remember very well. Um, hate crime units are really interesting because when you imagine Mm. them, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you probably think, okay, they're going to be, you know, investigating incidents, uh, against minority groups. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) uh, Strangely enough, a lot of hate crimes unit actually they end up infiltrating uh, leftist groups. That that's like hmm. what a lot of them do. And you're like, well, how does that happen? That doesn't make sense. Well, I'll give you an example. In the late 2000s, the hate crimes mm-hmm. unit in Hamilton, Ontario, listed police as a targeted minority <laughs> alongside black people, alongside wow. Jewish people. Okay, so all of a sudden, <laughs> you can see how. A hate crime right. unit suddenly ends up deciding they need to survey leftist groups. Like, if they're totally. going to combat anti-police hatred, mm. what is that comprise of? <laughs> right? That yeah, sounds totally. insane, but this literally yeah. happened already. Okay, uh-huh. <laughs> so like, the it's it's not it's not crazy to be hesitant around like how the concept of hate crime is actually going to be implemented totally by people that you have a lot of disagreement with right yeah no it's 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 very true well and it's like it's like we there it the like <clears throat> the internet without section 230 does make me think of like the great firewall in china hmm. right like that they there are just like terms that if you post them on the chinese internet your post goes into the void and no one ever sees it right wow, and like anyone yeah. who tries to load that web page it won't load for them and uh it's not good, right? Like, you can't talk about the Tiananmen Square massacre on the Chinese right. internet. There was a bit where people were making fun of uh, Xi Jinping because he looks like Winnie the Pooh, and you couldn't post about Winnie the Pooh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the, <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember the context, but there was at one point, like, a character, like a letter that was banned because people started abbreviating a long term to just the one character. So oh they just goodness. got rid of that. Whole, it's like... And and the weird the the weird a weird part of the section two thirty stuff is that it would be putting in the hands like the people who would be making those moderation decisions that they'd have to make very severely would be these private companies right. that don't have elected officials and have like it's a weird. They don't have the yeah, like it's, the democratic like mechanisms for it's being weird like to be yeah. like I want Facebook to severely limit speech. Yeah, um, that's a weird position to take, and it's also weird to take the position I don't want Facebook to take anything offline ever. Right there, uh, <laughs> section totally. two thirty is the middle ground. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's yeah, it was a wild article in 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 uh, in Wired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and i'm really curious because it hmm. sounds like the liberals are on board the ndp are on board so they have yeah, enough we'll votes see if this... you know to to push this through if they do i hope that there's enough critique that it gets um 
gets rolled back a bit. I do, you know, yeah. like I said, I, I want like exploitative stuff to be taken down very quickly. And I, that would be totally. great if there's mechanisms for that. Cause I know it can be really hard for people who, yeah. you know, have revenge porn online or whatever to like find someone who cares and takes them seriously enough to deal with that. Um, yeah, so yeah, totally. there, it just feels like there's like some really good stuff and some really, really bad stuff mixed in together in the bill. Yeah. Um, no, I and think, I think, yeah, yeah, like the term slippery slope gets thrown around a lot <laughs> and misused a lot. But sure. in this case, I actually really think it fits. Yeah. No, I think I think I'm with you. It's I mean, this stuff is is hard to get right, I think, because it's like if it was as easy as removing Section 230, it would be easy to get right. But it actually isn't. It's actually very like tangled and it's just full of those those awkward trade-offs like our new tagline says right <laughs> that it's like um yeah how many civil liberties are you willing to give up in order to get rid of online harassment or something yeah, um hopefully exactly. i guess legally none i think civil liberties are enshrined in law <laughs> um <laughs> but uh yeah so then then the question is how can you uh fix these problems without removing people's civil liberties Mm-hmm. which is a really it's a really really hard problem <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like it's not um there unfortunately there is not one weird hack that will solve the world <laughs> sorry jaron i know you tried yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a good title i mean it got us to read the article so <laughs> <laughs> it did but you know i think it's uh if anyone is coming to you and telling you that they have the sim- the simple solution uh-huh. to this massive <laughs> social problem well it does remind me too of those old <laughs> ads on the internet that were like doctors hate him do you remember those <laughs> where it's like just some random guy who claimed to have like a medical cure and that doctors would hate him because they want you to be sick so you pay your medical bills oh yeah um, absolutely. i think that guy's in prison now actually um yeah <laughs> well there's <laughs> this like um conspiracy theorist like mm. paleontologist or whatever who has that netflix show <laughs> something oh, okay. apocalypse you told me about this <laughs> i probably even brought it up on the podcast before <laughs> but i just love it because he'll be like anthropologists are hiding this information they don't want you to know about this uh-huh. and then the show literally cuts to an anthropologist who is talking yeah Totally. about the thing <laughs> and now we're going to the secret location on an anthropological dig site <laughs> like, yeah exactly what are, we, what are you talking about did you come across this on your own you were just wandering through the forest no <laughs> there's not like yeah there's not like a secret solution that the world is keeping from us this stuff is this stuff is tricky <laughs> or is there <laughs> bom, bom, stay bom. tuned <laughs> next Check week in next we'll time. <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly if only (laughs) well this has been hot take think tank until next time